The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. As I, as I said, the Bible talks about uh, the duality of a human being, but it also talks about the unity of, of the human being. And the me or the I um, is that point of unity which uh, gets a great deal of coverage in, in the Old Testament. Um, there's a fascinating book which some of you who, who know Hebrew, uh, or even if you don't know Hebrew, you could probably uh, figure it out by Hans Walter Wolf, W-O-L-F-F. I have it in French, but it, it exists in English and in German. The Anthropology of the Old Testament. And what he does is he takes various Hebrew words used for the uh, human being in the Bible and describes the, uh, describes the human being in terms of those words. Um, one of them is the nefesh for, for you Hebrew people um, which um, we sometimes dis- uh, translate as a person uh, or living being, the nefesh chayah um, and he goes through all the scriptural references and comes to certain conclusions about what nefesh means uh, for, for humanity uh, for example uh, uh, he, he says that it has to do with the person's ability uh, to relate to others with the soul, with the emotions, and, and, and so on. Um, and he talks about the basar. The basar um, is a term used in the Old Testament to refer to man's fragility, uh, perishable man. Um, and um, we translate that often with flesh. Um, remember our frame, we are flesh, we are dust, have mercy on us. Um, and that kind of reference. Um, and references to ruach, the spirit, um, and what that means and what it doesn't mean, uh, the breath, uh, the life of the person, because uh, the, the person is a breathing person. The lave, or the lebao, which is the heart, um, the heart being the center. And I wanted to just pause on this term lave and give you a very interesting consideration that you may you may have run into, but you may not. Um, and this gets us into our consideration of life and death here in a very direct way. Um, the lave is the heart. But when we think of the heart, we think of this organ that, that you know, beats and, and, and sends blood around and, and so on. Um, when the biblical writers thought of the heart, they thought of the center of the human being. At times, that center indeed is identified with that organ that beats. They knew about that. But many times it is not. And there's an amazing place in 1 Samuel 25, 1 Samuel 25, 37 following, where Nabal dies, but his death is in two stages. 
Um, the heart of Nabal hardened in himself and became like stone. About ten days later, Yahweh struck Nabal and he died. Um, now, a lot, biblical exegetes have, have had a hard time with this, obviously. Um, and uh, they wondered, you know, what, what happened and what can we learn about the biblical view of man and what can we learn about the biblical view of death from, from a passage like this? Um, for, for, for my money, um, what's happening is that, first of all, in this passage, as many other passages, the organ is not in view, particularly. It's not the beating heart that, that stops beating. Um, what seems to be happening is that the heart is equated with the person who lives, the person who moves, the person who thinks, feels, responds, the responsive person. And, and Nabal may have had what we would call a stroke um, or a hemorrhage, cerebral hemorrhage. I don't know. I don't know that that's what happened. But what may have happened is that something led to his being in a coma or a para paralysis or, or, or whatever. Um, and though the heart is beating, technically, um, the, 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 the human being is not responding. And the text says that he became like stone. Now, interestingly enough, the text doesn't say that at this point he died. And you see, Bauma doesn't talk about this text. Um, and he tends to talk about places where uh, the death is much more equated with the ceasing of various functions and so forth. But I think if he had paid attention to this, he might have had some problems because um, it's only 10 days later that, that, that Nabal dies, uh, though he was like stone for 10 days. Now, far from me to suggest that this is some master technical text that ought to cover all the cases of people in comas and vegetative state. I don't believe that, and I think we're going to have, have to wrestle with that. But uh, very, very interesting how these biblical terms, like the lave, the heart, um, though they're quite flexible, um, show that there's no one thing that makes up the human being. There's no one key uh, to uh, whether that uh, person is dead because that one thing has ceased or, or has, um, has, has not ceased. Um, as a matter of fact, in the, in the Bible, um, you, the, the most often when death occurs, the, mo the most frequent description is one that has to do with breathing uh, rather than the beating heart. Now, the, there are some passages where the beating heart is, is, is noticed and so forth. But um, the most frequent description of death is one in which uh, breathing ceases, and in tandem with that, the person yields the spirit or yields the animating factor in his or her being. Now, sometimes it's consciously so. I guess the only case in which it was controlled in a successful way was, was our Lord, who yielded his spirit to, to God. Um, even in suicide, you don't control the exact moment, and you may or may not succeed, and so on. But that's, that's the, uh, uh, the most frequent uh, biblical description of death. And the most frequent biblical description of life is, interestingly enough, also the breath. Um, 
And that tells us something. Um, um, unborn <coughs> infants don't breathe through the lungs. They receive oxygen in another way. Are we being told by the Bible that there's something significantly different about a baby that breathes than the unborn? I think we are. I don't think for a minute we're being told that that's some sort of excuse to go ahead and abuse the unborn. But I think there is a, a, a great difference between uh, a, uh, a human being that breathes and a human being that doesn't. Um, and the Bible does talk about the breath. It talks about the blood a great deal as well. Um, the, um, the blood um, not only is something that you need to have in order to feed your body and so forth, but the blood in the, in the Old Testament um, represents life. Um, the, uh, like the breath, the blood uh, doesn't play a role in the Old Testament in the intellectual life or in the emotional life. Um, there are 360 uh, cases in the, in the Old Testament where dham is used, uh, but it's along with nephesh rather than with the heart that the blood is put into relation. Um, for example, so, uh, Proverbs 1.18 says about criminals that it's against their proper blood uh, that um, they have revolted, against their proper life. And you know the parallelism of the Old Testament poetry requires you to set things up in terms of complement in, in cases like this. Um, blood simply stands for human life here. Um, Psalm 72, verse 13, um, asking for an ideal king, the description is given, because he will save the life, nachshot, nefesh, of the poor, and that their blood, damam, would be precious in his eyes. Um, and as you know, of course, um, there are injunctions against certain kinds of, of abuses of the blood because in the blood is the life. This wasn't a magical view, this was a representative or, or metaphorical view. Um, but it was such a strong metaphorical view that um, the sacrifice was represented in terms of the shed blood and the prohibition against eating certain foods uh, with their blood in them because the life was in there. And then as you know when our Lord died, um, he shed his blood um, not just, you know, in 20th century terms, well, he just you know, he lost blood and he died. But in the biblical terms, this is um, highly uh, significant for its, its, uh, its meaning uh, of, of the giving of life. Um, so the breath and the blood are the two uh, most frequently used uh, <coughs> um, descriptions of life. And the cessation of the breath and the shedding of the blood are the two most uh, significant uh, or, or most often used descriptions of death. Um, now, how do you correlate that to the modern ethical problems that we have? Uh, well, that's, that's what we have to begin to, to do. Um, now, let's bring this down to the 20th century and talk about uh, defining death. Um, how do you define death in um, the modern world? Um, well, um, 
in the Cruzon, in the Nancy Cruzon case, um, uh, this, this presents the same kind of problem as Nabal. Did she die in 83 um, when she went into a coma? Or did she die just recently when um, she was allowed uh, no longer to be kept on, on, on machines and so forth? Um, and this becomes more and more important in a world where technological means enable us to keep various individual functions going while the others don't. So here we have the diversity of biblical terms. We also have the unity, which we're, we're going to want to work on here. Um, Robert Veach, director of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics in Georgetown University, and incidentally, Georgetown is a, is a center of much work and research on, on medical ethics. Um, I think it was last year we had a lecture back in Philadelphia of Edmund Pellegrino, who is the, uh, the head of the Department of, of Ethics down there. And that was a very, very excellent lecture on um, terminal choices. Um, and um, Robert Veach, who is down there, says, there is widespread agreement that two separate issues are really at stake <coughs> in the debate over the determination of death. The first question is essentially philosophical, or conceptual, or ethical. And that is, under what circumstances do we consider a person dead? Um, or ask it another way, what are the necessary sufficient conditions for a person to be alive? What essential characteristic of a person is lost? And um, then the second thing is more scientific. How empirically do you measure the irreversible loss of whatever it is that you've determined to be essential for life? And Veach says that there are four categories for defining death. Now, um, just for convenience, I'd like to take these. You may have other categories. These may be inappropriate. But let's just, for the sake of convenience, take the four categories based on four different conceptions of death. Okay, some of these are exclusive. Some of these are uh, complementary. Um, in considering these, um, you, we will get at a basic uh, framework. First, failure of heart and lungs. Okay, there we, this is something very close to what we were saying in the Bible. Um, this is the traditional understanding of the locus of death, and it focuses on the heart and lungs. Um, in this idea, death occurs, um, or, or, or rather centers on, questions relating to vital body fluids, blood, um, and the flow of it, animated by the fact of, of breathing. When these have stopped irreversibly, uh, then death have occur has occurred. Um, so the empirical criteria are pretty easy to observe. Um, and even today, uh, most people are declared dead when circulation and respiration stop. Um, and before the development of the respirator and other life-extending medical technologies, the failure of heart and lungs was considered a necessary and sufficient condition to diagnose death. Because of these modern devices, however, um, you now sometimes have to ask who or what is responsible for the vital signs, the individual or the respirator? Or is it the cardiac pacemaker? Heart and lung failure as such is no longer sufficient just to say in every case that human life has ended. 
So the, this brings us to a second category, separation of body and soul. And as I told you, these are very different kinds of categories. Um, if you take the soul to mean the animating principle of the human being, um, then the cessation of the flow of body fluids may accompany the departure of something called the soul, though the two events may not always be equated, strictly speaking. When the soul leaves, when the spirit departs, and I'm taking the dichotomous view rather than the trichotomous view here, but if you want to quarrel, that doesn't matter, it's used the soul or spirit. Um, that's when death occurs. Now, of course, how can I know the soul is departed? Well, I can't. Um, I can't pinpoint it. I can only judge that on a more um, empirical basis. Um, and as you know, a whole Pandora's box has been opened up because of the idea that some, some people have that you can die physically <coughs> because certain things cease. And then your soul wanders for a while or you're, you're there observing things from an objective view and then all of a sudden you can be revived and you get back into your body. Um, I think there's a lot of difficulty with being so sure that that's what's happening. Um, haven't yet read, I haven't read a single account of that which has convinced me that the soul really did leave uh, the body at that time and that the person wasn't just hallucinating or whatever. There are some very strange, mysterious things and the human being is a strange, mysterious creature, but I haven't read any that I could say, oh, well that proves the soul really did leave at this point. I have an experience with Is that right? I thought I was a Christian, but I wasn't. And uh, it was just like I could see my, they want to call it soul, like it was like a feather moving in, a, in the wind, blowing like that, like see back and forth. And when I went about, and I passed through some type of cloudy barrier, and there were two beings present. I didn't actually see them, I'm just aware they were there. I wasn't seeing things the way you normally see things. And then I heard one say to the other, not yet. And as soon as I said not yet, I started, I started becoming heavy, and I came back. And I saw my body, and as soon as I entered my body, I woke up. And then I became a Christian. About six months later, it really scared me because I realized where I would have gone. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's just extraordinary. That's just wonderful. Um, and none of that obliges me to say that your soul really did leave your body. I don't know what happened. You had some, you know, something happened, obviously, and the Lord used it. Um, but. The reason that I think it even matters to say one way or the other is because the Bible does define death as the departure of the soul from the body. And death is irreversible, um, except for the resurrection. Uh, so I have a theological reason for saying that it, you know, you didn't, your soul didn't depart. but. Uh, I have no theological reason whatsoever, on the contrary, for saying that that experience was not a profoundly spiritual one in which something, uh, in some way, God did speak to you and there may very well have been people wrestling for you, over you, I don't know, and I believe in uh, invisible beings, I believe in demons, I believe in angels, and so uh, all kinds of things can happen there. 
So uh, anyway, well, thanks for thanks for joining. Well, I realize it's totally subjective. You're right. I can't measure your objective. Yeah. I'm just glad it wasn't yet. Sure. Oh yeah. I've had dreams that have given me something like that kind of experience. Um, and uh, I think the Lord uses that, and it's part of the way. I mean, if you want, if you go, if you get obsessed with this and start making it into a, a normal thing, then you, of course, you get into trouble. But I, I think many of us have had moments where s such things happen, and, and they're very important. And they they are used, and, and the Lord gets through to us somehow through those in ways that He doesn't in other times. Um, the third criterion, back to the more scientific thing, is a, is brain death. Um, this one I'm distinguishing from neocortical death, and let me just go through that. Um, brain death uh, emerged in response to the difficulty of determining death when technical devices intervene. And the concept of death in this view is the irreversible loss of the capacity for bodily integration and social interaction. That is a direct quote from number 22. Oh, from, from the same uh, Veach, uh, uh, Robert Veach here. Uh, by the way, I'm using uh, Robert Veach's uh, death, comma, determination of in the Westminster Dic Dictionary of Christian Ethics. Now, that's not anything to do with our Westminster, though it's Philadelphia. Um, and it's a, it's a dictionary uh, edited by Childress and Macquarie, which we have in, in the library. Um, irreversible loss of the capacity for bodily integration and social interaction. Now, this twofold capacity is centered in the brain. It's there that the loss of death is to be found. Death is considered to have occurred when the entire brain has died, and because the criteria for diagnosing brain death are simple and observable, and because no one with brain death, uh, at least according to the most commonly used criteria, including a, Harvard, a very famous Harvard study, has ever survived, um, this understanding of death for those who suffered major brain injury is is adequate, assuming that the concept of whole brain death is philosophically sound. And yet, because of the thousands of individuals with partial brain death, with the capacity for organ system integration, but without the capacity for social interaction, some are questioning whether the concept of whole brain destruction is not too narrow a criterion for declaring life to be over in every case of severe brain damage. Now, hardly anyone would say that it, this is a sufficient condition for declaring a person dead. Um, and uh, this is a very debated question. So, and this leads to the, the last one, which is increasingly prominent. Fourth one, neocortical death. The final category uh, puts the locus of death in the neocortex, the outer layer of the brain covering the cerebrum. Um, sometimes people call this cerebral death. Um, and then many people in ethics call it higher brain death. Uh, there is a more technical term, the apalic syndrome, A-P-A-L-L-I-C. Um, in this view, 
when neocortical functioning is irreversibly lost, and you can tell this uh, by a number of criteria, the EEG is probably the most common. The person is dead because the concept of death here, and I'm going to quote Beach one more time, is uh, irreversible loss of consciousness or the capacity for social interaction or both. Okay. Now, in the permanent vegetative state, uh, which is a kind of unhappy term, but that's what uh, most people use, the PVS, um, you would have neocortical death. Um, in definition three, the individual is not dead. In definition four, that person is. Um, those who say the person is dead focus on the neocortex because it appears to be the biological precondition for consciousness and self-awareness, the basis of personal life and social interaction. However, because those in the PVS are clearly not dead biologically, and because cases of recovery, though extremely <coughs> rare, have been known, uh, who are thought to have lost neocortical function, no national or state government nor any religious body has officially endorsed neocortical death as an acceptable understanding of death. I would predict it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet that I know of. Um, while neocortical destruction is a necessary condition for diagnosing death, it's not considered sufficient by at least legal civil bodies. Okay. Um, how, how, how do we, uh, as, as biblical Christians, uh, react to these four categories. Uh, um, what's your view of, of um, the correlation between the biblical material and one, two, three, and or four? Do you have it? I know it's 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 the material. It is uh, new and, and, and strange and wonderful. Some of it. Uh, well, um, let me push you a little bit. What kinds of questions would you want to have answered before you declared a PVS victim to be dead? Okay. Uh, so you would um, you would disagree with the trend that is attaching more and more importance to the neocortical uh, quality of life type of, of view. Yeah, yeah. I I I I, I agree with you. Though, um, of course, the criteria are helpful as complementary and and, and and so on. Um, What uh, the question I think you would want to ask, uh, of course, is if the condition is is sometimes reversible, have you not um, intruded into uh, the, someone's life, um, in, and, and have you not um, invaded someone's life by a definition? Um, 
Now, this does not answer the question of whether to withdraw treatment. That's not what we're up to here. This is a whole thing that we will go into in great detail later on. But I'm, I'm simply trying to get at life and death um, definition. Uh, there are a lot of people enthusiastic about neocortical death. A person named Schemer, S-C-H-E-M-M-E-R, uh, is very, very enthusiastic about um, the findings that confirm the opportunity of, of neocortical uh, criteria. And there are a lot of technical, um, scientific ways in which they feel that this is a, a, a very uh, helpful um, uh, criterion. One thing is you can confirm the detectable distinctions between unconscious patients, locked-in patients, and patients with dead cerebral cortex. And now that those distinctions have been proven to exist, um, there is something called the pulsed Doppler ultrasound, the PDU test, that establishes that when the characteristic brain death waveform is present, even though the brain stem may be functioning and sustaining heart and lung action, the cortex is reliably dead. And so this, this PDU measurement of the carotid um, artery blood flow is accurate by itself and can be done in any hospital in America. And this Schemmer calls a landmark discovery. Uh, the actual clinical point of death of the human being can now be identified, he says, um, technologically with certainty. And in his view, you no longer need to worry about pulling the plug too soon. As he says, and I quote him, when a patient has all the clinical evidence of permanent loss of consciousness over a period of time, we can now obtain a PDU test and a confident determination of brain death. Now, um, this so-called breakthrough is only of, of great ethical significance for people who accept neocortical destruction of death as um, the definition. And um, I think we probably would have some problems with this definition because of what uh, Laura said. Um, can we really equate neocortical destruction with the ending of personal life, even though the person is still breathing? And uh, all of this goes back to our earlier discussion of what's a person and how much does breathing and blood flow determine what a person is. Um, yeah. That's saying that someone that's been in a long-term coma, you can do this test on them and you can tell that they will never regain their mental faculties? I don't believe that's true. Is it? There are cases of reversion. Yeah, yeah, I don't think, I, mean, I think, think you're right. But I'm not real for, this test is not widely used. Okay. Um, I've actually never seen it done. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it could be very operator-dependent because the ultrasound is done by a technician. Hmm. You know, there's a certain technique of how to apply the, the instrument to the side of the neck and to make sure you're getting good readings. And I, I've never seen it used mm -hmm. across the board as, as something to determine. But see, the people who believe in the neocortical definition, in a sense, don't, uh, I guess it's not fair to say, in a sense, don't care. Of course they care. If there's a reversal, that they're excited about it, but they don't count on it because it's so rare, and it really is rare. I've seen the statistics. I don't have them in front of me. They're, 
It's very rare, but it happens. Um, and it's, it happens enough so that ethically, uh, you'd have to have a problem with um, defining death that way. Um, because there are a few people who, who recover. So you open up the door to certain things. Now, I, I don't mean to be obscure, because there is um, a, a really important issue here in the neocortical definition. Um, and that is, it's, it, if you just take it as a measurement of what other things have stopped, then it, it can be a thing that, that confirms it. If you take it as your main criterion, then I think you've got, you've got big problems. Um, a fellow named Robert Rakestraw, R-A-K-E-S-T-R-A-W, he seems to be from Bethel Theological Seminary outside of Chicago, says this, um, I suggest the following definition, a human person is a unique life made as or in God's image, known and cared for by God at every stage of life with the actual ability or potential to be aware of oneself and to relate in some way to one's environment, to other human beings and to God. The earthly life of a person begins at conception and ends when this actual ability or potential ceases. According to this definition then, the fetus as well as the comatose patient is a person, whereas the PVS individual as defined with precision, which is made increasingly possible, uh, is not. And I'm quoting him, his or her potential for <coughs> self-awareness, social interaction, and communication with God is irreversibly lost. <coughs> and um, I, uh, I guess I just uh, would hesitate to say that, though I sure appreciate trying to relate the image of God to, those, to all those functions. Um, I mean, and also, uh, there are some cases, I mean, as you mentioned, the good hands uh, baby or the, you know, grossly deformed child, especially with neurologic malformations, that, you know, are they self-aware? I don't know. I mean, they'll cry yeah. sometimes, yeah. but that's about right. it. Right. And they're born that way. Yeah. So, did they never have the image of God? Right. I don't know. I, don't know. I, I would hate to say that. There are Christians who do say that, but I think it, um, I prefer a frame's reasoning which looks at it from the other end and says um, descendants of Adam are uh, what the Bible calls image of God. And that brings with it certain rights and responsibilities. And, um, and then we can worry about exactly what that means in terms of, of measurement and, and scientific detail, um, which we need to do. But to start with a functional definition, which then only correlates with some scientific uh, patterns, measure, scientifically measurable patterns, I, I think leads to, uh, leads to problems. Um, now, um, he, he, this fellow, uh, Rakestraw, is is aware of some of the problems that this, this, um, this raises. Um, he says, it appears then that neocortical destruction equals the end of personal life, 
because the correctly diagnosed PVS individual is a body of organs and systems artificially sustained without the personal human spirit that once enabled this body-soul unity to represent God on earth. Since the Bible on occasion uses the language of the human spirit's departure as something different from the person's life force or final breath to signify death, we may use similar language in suggesting that the spirit of PVS individual has already, has already returned to God. Now, his references are, uh, maybe somebody could read this for me, Luke 23, 46, and then Acts 59. If you didn't catch that, what he's saying is that in his view, the PVS person, his body is there, but the soul is gone. Uh, and then he says, the Bible occasionally says the spirit departs, and that isn't the final breath. Uh, and um, so it's the same thing. So Luke 23, 46. Who's, uh, all right. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, in thy hand I commend my spirit. Yeah. Having said that, so he would See, um, in, his, in his view, this human spirit's departure is different from the person's life force or final breath. Is it? Is that what the passage says? I mean, I mean, I suppose you could read it and say that he first said, I commend, uh, and then it happened. And that's also Jesus, who and, is, yeah. has, you know, abilities that we don't necessarily, or has control. Well, that's true. However, his next passage is Stephen, Acts 7, 59 to 60. Acts 7, 59 to 60, is it? And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell Now, see, he says that's the same as the PVS person who's already returned to God, but his, you know, his body is still moving. No, no, it's not. It doesn't seem to me at all. No, because I mean, just because he says, Lord, take my spirit, doesn't mean God did it right. That's right. Now. A little later, when he was stoned. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's it's uh, odd. He goes on to say the body still has some kind of re residual life, but the person is dead. And then he says, speaking theologically, the individual's personal earthly existence as the image of God appears to be over. While the body is necessary for imaging God, it is not sufficient for doing so. Which incident? Abel. Oh, oh, yeah. Closer, yeah. This. Yeah, it would. Although he won't use that because the very words of the passage say that God uh, came and judged him only ten days later, and he died. Oh, it, was, it was death. So uh, that's right. Um, I I don't mean to be facile with this because I realized. I, I hope we all realize. <coughs> The reason people are groping with this is because we do have these tragic cases of the PVS. And, um, you know, you have to ask the question, is it, is it really God's law that demands that we keep them going on these artificial means? Um, and I think what they're trying to do is to say, okay, the way out of it is to sort of define them as dead so we can feel better about the whole thing. I think it's a better way out of it myself. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll say it now if you want, but we, we have a whole section on this coming up whenever it is. Um, when we get to uh, the, the Wenberg, or the Venberg, um, October 29th, 
and, and, and November 5th, we will be talking about terminal care. Um, but, but my position is that um, under certain circumstances, and they have to be very carefully defined, um, withholding or even withdrawing treatment can be legitimate. Um, and the reason for that is not that the person's dead, but that you don't, um, you're, n you're not treating them as image bearers of God by simply attempting to preserve certain functions when all of the indications are uh, imminent death. Uh, Pellegrino talked about this last year, and uh, somebody in the audience said, okay, what do you mean imminent death? And he said, okay, you ask me the question, I'll answer you. I say, uh, imminent death means not more than one month life expectancy. And he said, I'm, this is arbitrary, and you have to be, um, and, and nobody can be sure about it 100%, we're not God, but you have to have some criterion. Uh, I think other people have two weeks, three days, you know, I don't know. But the point is that um, ethically, the, the, the strong likelihood of, of death, by all the indications you know, is, is as good a direct, an indication for your, um, um, your operations and your, your um, treatment or non-treatment as you can get. And you shouldn't want more. Um, you know, do doctors do this all the time. They prescribe things because there's a likelihood that what they give you is going to help what you have. But it doesn't mean that they know it's going to do that. And um, of course, the stakes are higher because it's life and death. But even that happens all the time. So um, I don't think you have to do what these people are doing to arrive at the possibility of withholding or withdrawing treatment. Um, and um, and that, that, that'll be the, the, the way I, I will try to go about this. Uh, but I, I think we do need to appreciate how, uh, how, how sensitive the issue is and how kind of simplistic, again, some of the extreme pro-life people are in just saying, well, you know, uh, obviously you've got to keep Nancy Cruzan alive because, you know, she's, she's uh, a person and, and uh, it doesn't matter how expensive it is, doesn't matter whether she knows it or not, whether um, you're just pumping air into her, it doesn't matter. You know, this is too easy, it's too simple, you know. There, there are issues here that are far deeper than that. Please. the image of God to the functions. Those functions are very much part of what the being is. The being in the image of God means, uh, among many other things, um, carrying out those functions. See, so I'm, I'm, I'm saying 
we don't reduce the human being to the functions, but the, the nature of the human being is very closely attached to what those functions do. Um, and all you have to do is say, you don't, you don't say, I cease to be the image of God when I no longer uh, can have dominion. You simply say, I can have dominion because I am the image of God. That ability may be severely impaired by the fall, but that doesn't change who I am by, by, by virtue of creation. Yeah, my question, um, my question is whether uh, is it relevant to I mean, the issue of the image of God, how you image of God, to the issue of life and death? Oh, I um, think it is. Um, yeah. How can it relate? Unless there is a, I mean, we divide the whole How can you relate? Well, for one thing, the law of God um, uh, reg- regulates human life in a different way from animal life and plant life. And being the image of God is the big difference. I mean, it's fine to uh, kill a plant, you know. Or, but there are lots of, I mean, there are lots of other reasons. I think, I think this issue of, of, of um, the image of God being the reason why you treat human beings a certain way is, uh, and, 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 and life being very much a part of what the image of God is, human life being very much part of it, is, um, makes it unique. Um,